It's a real pleasure for me uh, to be here. I'm the associate pastor, as Tom said, at Filbert Presbyterian Church just around the corner in York. Uh, Michael likes to joke that I am his oldest friend. We figured out that we were in Sunday school together back in the mid-80s. We both attended, our families attended the same church in Columbia. We didn't know it at the time. I don't remember knowing him at that point. Uh, But then we were able to connect later in seminary and now serving in the same Presbytery, so I'm thankful to be here serving and um, filling the pulpit of my oldest friend this morning and to be uh, with you all as well. It's a pleasure for me to be here, and I'm, I'm grateful. Uh, if you would, take your, your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah 52. We'll start uh, uh, on Isaiah 52, verse 13, and read through Isaiah 53, verse 6. Uh, we've been preaching through Isaiah at... Our church in Filbert, and uh, this was the portion that I had maybe about a month ago uh, or more. A beautiful portion of God's Word, kind of a climax in Isaiah's prophecy, uh, looking forward some seven year, 700 years rather before the coming of Christ, uh, in great detail describing the work of the Lord Jesus in his death, and then the next chapter, 54, in his resurrection. Uh, And so we'll read from chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53, verse 6. If you would, give your attention to God's word. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Would you pray with me as we ask the Lord's help? Father, this is your word. Your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in the truth? Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. And by your spirit, enable us to see Jesus, to trust him, to rest and to rejoice And his faithful work is our great Redeemer. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. I don't know about you, but I started planning for college 
the first day that I arrived at Winthrop University to begin college. I was a little bit late. Uh, these days, things are a little bit different. I've got a middle school-aged daughter getting ready to enter into ninth grade this coming school year, and we're already getting emails and letters in the mail urging us to prepare now for college, to go ahead and plan ahead if that's the goal, which, which for her it is, uh, to go ahead and start taking the steps now so that she'll be ready for this goal of attending a university and, and God willing, graduating uh, in four years. It took me six, which I guess I should have started planning a little earlier. The idea they advertise is set a goal, uh, lay out a plan and follow it through. In a sense, Isaiah has been doing something quite similar in the several chapters leading up to what we have just read. He's been uh, laying out for us God's plan to restore his people, laying out for us God's design of redemption. And again and again, he's told us what it is that God intends to do, what it is that God plans to do. He plans to restore his people back into fellowship with himself and and looking ahead back to the land where he had placed them. He plans to put an end to his wrath for their sin, uh, to execute wrath fully and then to be done with it, to put a stop to his own wrath. He plans to bless them with comfort, with redemption, with forgiveness, and then through them to bless all the nations, that all the world will know the living and true God and the forgiveness of sins that is found in him. This has been God's plan, the goal Isaiah has been laying out in multiple ways up to this point. But he hasn't yet told us how he will do that. And what we find out in these verses that we've read just now is that the way God intends to carry out his plan of redemption is not through a program, but through a person. Not a program, not a series of steps that we're to take, uh, not some sort of method, technique, but rather he will carry out this worldwide plan of redemption, of bringing all nations to himself, putting an end to his wrath, providing comfort and blessing to all the world through a person whom Isaiah identifies here as the servant. The servant. We tend to want a program. We tend to want some things to do. Give me, give me a list, right? I can keep a list as long as it's manageable and I can make it up. I can keep a list. Maybe even give me some words to say. Give me some buzzwords. Give me the right words. I can say the right words. I, I like that. I can manage that. But God tells us in Isaiah and throughout the rest of Scripture that our problem of sin goes far deeper than we understand, than we fully appreciate. And that therefore the solution to the problem of sin must also go as deep as the problem. We don't need a new method. We don't need a list of things to do. We don't need just words to say we need a whole life renovation. And God provides that for us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Isaiah has been building up to this. He kind of gets a rolling start in chapter 51. I would encourage you to go back and read from 51 all the way through 53. And you can kind of see how it's almost like an orchestral piece of music. There's these themes that are being developed uh, in different sections. And they all come to this roaring crescendo in chapters 52 and 53 as they all come together in this picture of the suffering servant. And all along the way, Isaiah has been getting our attention. In chapter 51, he says things like, Listen, look, God's going to comfort you. He's going to restore you. Pay attention. God's going to give you righteousness. Wake up. Call out to God to do what he has promised to do. Wake up. Wake up. Depart. And finally, in 52, 13, behold, all of these promises that he's been making... All of the plans that he's been laying out, finally he stops and says, Behold, this is how I will do it, my servant. Notice with me how Isaiah starts this description of the servant of the Lord. He begins by saying that the servant will be successful. Verse 13, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will act with wisdom. Everything that he needs to carry out his mission, he will have. He will be well equipped to do what God has called him to do. He will prosper. Furthermore, he describes this servant in ways that tell us this servant is no mere man, but he's divine. Notice again verse 13. He will be high and lifted up, greatly exalted. These are words that are only used elsewhere in Isaiah to describe the Lord. In fact, it's the same way the Lord is described in Isaiah 6. The call of Isaiah to his ministry as a prophet. Isaiah enters the temple of the Lord in the year that King Uzziah died, and he sees the Lord, you remember, high and lifted up and The train of his robe fills the temple and Isaiah is overwhelmed with the glory of God as he sees it in this vision. And here we're told that this servant bears the same characteristics. He's high. He's lifted up. He's greatly exalted. He is a divine figure, no mere man. He will be successful in his work and he is high and lifted up. But there's a little bit of a contrast as you move into verse 14 because we're told that the way in which this servant who is high and lifted up will carry out his mission is by being brought low, by being humiliated through what we might call substitutionary suffering, which is just another way of saying he suffers, he's humiliated, he's brought low for others, namely for all of God's people. Notice verse 14 the description that Isaiah gives of him, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. He's humble. He's not much to look at. He doesn't appear to be much. There's astonishment even being terrified at the appearance of this servant. We're given the impression that from a human perspective, the ways that we evaluate people... This servant does not appear very impressive. In fact, he appears to be altogether unimpressive. Notice verse 2 of chapter 53. This servant grew up before the Lord like a tender shoot, like a root, root out of parched ground. 
In other words, he doesn't look like anything impressive, like he's not going to amount to much. He has no majesty, no stately form. You would not move out of the way if he were walking down the street toward you. You would not move out of the way and bow down to him or give him any respect or honor. He looked like any other ordinary, unimpressive man, like a tender shoot, a root out of parched ground. It won't amount to much is the evaluation that is given. Humanly speaking, according to natural reason, you can't understand who Jesus is. It must be revealed. God must reveal it. Just like when Jesus has this interaction with his disciples and he says, you know, who do people say that I am? And they give these answers. Some say John the Baptist, uh, so forth and so on. Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter's watershed response in the Gospels, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right. And you didn't come to this conclusion on your own. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Human evaluation of Jesus is, he's not much. He's unimpressive. He doesn't look like anything worthy of emulation, certainly not worthy of adoration. He seems to be altogether unimpressive. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are high above our thoughts and the ways that he carries out his work. is far different than what we would expect. In a sense, Isaiah is almost giving us a narrative of the humble life of Jesus. Think about it. He's born in a lowly cattle stall to two people who would be nobodies in society, nobody to be noticed. His first guest, other than the animals that surround him, are the dirty shepherds. Uh, who come and give praise and worship to the newborn king. He has a meager band of 12 companions. One denies him, another betrays him. He's given over to the cruelty of the Roman authorities through his own people, calling for his blood. He's abandoned by his friends. He's beaten, he's mocked, he's spat upon, goes through this mock, unjust trial made to bear his own cross up the hill in weakness and in utter humiliation. He can't even carry it all the way. Another has to be employed from the crowd simply to carry the cross up to the hill outside the gates of the city. And there he's put to death in the most uh, disrespectful and humiliating and shameful way, death on a cross. This servant is utterly humiliated, as Isaiah says, He was despised. He was forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom, when they see him, men hide their face. He was despised. And the end of verse 3 says, we did not esteem him. What does that mean? It means that the human evaluation of Jesus, according to just simply a natural way of thinking, was he's a big zero. We esteemed him not. In fact, their evaluation of him was his suffering must be for something he's doing, something he's done. No one would go through this amount of grief, this amount of sorrow, except for something that they themselves had done. And the evaluation of Christ was God has abandoned him. He must be abandoned because of his own sins. And Isaiah grabs our attention in verse 4. Surely our evaluation was wrong. 
He's not bearing his own griefs. He's not bearing his own sin. He's not suffering for something he's done. Rather, verse 4 tells us it's our griefs that he himself has has borne. It's our sorrows that he has carried. We esteemed him stricken and smitten of God, but he was pierced through, verse 5, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Notice this back and forth here. Substitution. He bore our sins. He was crushed for our iniquity. The the chastisement for our peace was placed upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. He is standing in our place, bearing what we rightly deserve. But he takes it upon himself voluntarily as our substitute. There's a story told about uh, Tsar Nicholas, the leader of the Russian Empire in the early 20th century, uh, that on one occasion during, I believe, World War I, he was going to observe his troops, kind of examine the morale of the troops that were on the field. But he didn't want to show up in all the pomp and circumstance that would have been proper for his position, so he disguised himself. He clothed himself as just an ordinary soldier among the ranks, and so he wouldn't be recognized uh, so that he could get a better feel for how things were going. As he made his way through the camp and kind of got an idea of how the troops were doing, he decided he would go and visit a a friend of his who happened to be one of the treasurers in the army. And he was set up in a tent. He was an officer and and Nicholas went in to visit him and the man was uh, passed out drunk at his desk, uh, an empty bottle of vodka next to him. And before him were the books that he was in charge of laid out before him. And it was clear as Nicholas came in and began to examine things, uh, it was, in fact, uncommon for him to be drunk at this point, uh, believe it or not. But he examined the books, and he came to understand that the treasurer had been stealing money. He had a gambling problem. And he'd been squandering these funds that were under his charge that were not his. He was a steward of them, but he'd been squandering them and had lost much gambling these things away and had written a note in the books, a great debt, who can pay? And next to the books was his revolver. He planned to take his own life. Nicholas saw this, deduced what was going on, and wrote a note in the book, I can, and signed his name. And he, he assumed the treasurer's debt that he had squandered, that he had gambled away, this money that was not his own. Christ is the one who looks at our account, sees how we have squandered the gifts that we have given, how we sinned against God and in his sight. And when we come to a sense of our own sin, our response ought to be similar to that of the treasurer, a great debt. Who can pay? And Christ is the one who signs his name to our debt and says, I will, I will bear your griefs. I will be chastised for your iniquity, for your transgression. I will bear the punishment full and totally in your place. He was wounded for our sins. This is a substitutionary sacrifice that the servant is making. The great Dutch master Rembrandt caught this uh, in his painting of the cross of Jesus. It's a famous painting. You can look it up on great Google and see a picture of it. Rembrandt paints this picture of the cross being placed up on top of the hill. And if you look closely enough, you'll see Rembrandt paints himself into the picture. Are you in the picture? 
Have you, in that sense, painted yourself into the crucifixion of Jesus, recognizing both that he came for you and then believing by faith that he indeed took your sins on himself, that the price has been paid, that the penalty has been poured out in full in the Lord Jesus Christ, graciously, mercifully for sinners such as we are, Rembrandt got that, and he painted himself into the picture as a way of expressing that. Not only does Isaiah point us to the servant as a substitute, willingly taking what is ours and giving us what rightly belongs to himself, but he also indicates that this exchange, Christ for us, solves every problem that we have, going all the way to the root of our deepest problem. Notice verse 5 and the way that Isaiah describes our sin. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. These, these two words, transgressions and iniquities, kind of get uh, a full, give us a full picture rather of sin and what it's like. On the one hand, you have transgressions, right? External behavior. God draws a line in the sand with his commandments and says, don't cross this line. Don't steal. Don't covet. Uh, don't drink. Don't smoke. Don't chew. Don't go with girls. No, that's, that's, not, that's not in the Bible. Have y'all ever heard that? Do you know? Yeah, okay. Uh, it's amazing what we come up with. But God draws a line. His commandments, they don't change. And, and we transgress that line. We, we behave in ways that go against, that cross the line that God has placed down for us, the boundaries that he sets for us, this transgression, external behavior. But our sin goes far deeper than that, and Isaiah gets at this with this word iniquity. The word means something like crookedness, perversity. It gets down to the uh, brokenness of our hearts, not just the, the ways in which we break God's external standard, but the ways in which our hearts themselves are broken, are crooked deep down. And we don't really like, I don't like this idea. I certainly wouldn't, would not want to be called a pervert. And I can imagine neither would you. And yet Isaiah is saying that the effect of sin in our hearts is that we are perverse. According to God's standard, our hearts are way off. We've gone far astray. We're crooked in our hearts. But isn't it good to know that the Lord Jesus Christ was crushed, not only for the external behaviors that we count as sin, that God counts as sin, but for the very perverseness of our hearts, all the crooked ways that we go down, all the ways in which we want things that we should not want, all the ways in which we love things that we should not love rather than loving the living and true God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, all the ways that we use others for our own personal gain as a means to an end, all the perverse ways that you see sin at work in the world, and you don't have to look far. You don't have to look far to see the perversity and the crookedness of sin for those who love and trust the Lord Jesus Christ, he took that on himself at the cross. You know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Imagine what that must have been like for the Father to look upon the Son and to see the perversity of our hearts and all the ways that we've sinned against God. No wonder the sky turned black. Christ bore that in his body for you, for us, as our perfect substitute, as our sacrifice. Not only that, but Isaiah highlights the results of this perfect work. The chastening for our well-being, our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. That word well-being, you could also translate it peace, wholeness. It's the shalom word. That we're all broken to pieces because of sin and Jesus begins to bind us back together to mend us like a broken net. That the effect of his work is to restore us to wholeness before the living God and to heal us from our sin. I think many of us, I know I certainly do, uh, walk around kind of like we've got our check baggage from the airport behind us, right? All, all of our sins, all of our shame, all of our guilt, all the ways that we have strayed. Uh, we're just carrying that around with us, and we, and we don't know what to do with it. Sometimes it feels lighter than at other times, but most of the time it feels quite heavy. I remember uh, a woman who's a friend of mine, and she once confided in me that she, she hated coming to church. She came every Sunday with her family, but she hated coming to church uh, sometimes because she felt like when she walked through the doors, everybody knew her baggage, that everybody knew her past sins, that everybody was kind of eyeballing her because they kind of, it's like she was on probation, you know, you don't really belong. I don't know if any of you have experienced that. The sad irony was nobody knew her past baggage. I didn't even know what it was until she told me. But her perception was, everybody's looking at me because of my past sins. She was carrying that with her as she walked through the doors of the church, almost like you stepped in dog mess outside and you walked inside and everybody started looking around wondering, who did that? Who stepped in that? And she felt the shame and the guilt of her sin, and it was as if she couldn't come to terms with the fact that Christ in his death taken all of it on himself. He became what we are, that we might become in him what he is, righteousness, and experience the full embrace of the loving Father who put all of his wrath upon Jesus at the cross so that our shame, our guilt, our sins would be put away and we would be welcomed by him with open arms, all for the sake of what the servant the suffering servant the Lord Jesus has done in our place. He gets down to the root of our problem and he solves it. Notice also verse 6, how comprehensive it is and how specific it is. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. There's not a single one of us that is excluded from this categorization. We've all gone astray. And yet it's not just the mob mentality because it's very specific. Each of us... Each of us has turned in the perversity of our hearts to his own way. But one of the most beautiful lines in Scripture, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. There's almost a cadence to it, right? It's poetry. Isaiah grabs for the most beautiful ways he can to describe for us the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of our sin, all of our iniquity, all of our shame, all of our guilt being placed upon 
Jesus. As the hymn says, the king of love my shepherd is, perverse and foolish, oft I strayed, but yet in love he sought me, and on his shoulder gently laid, and home rejoicing brought me. The term for all of this is imputation. It's a kind of a financial crediting term. That our sin gets placed on the account of Jesus, the great shepherd of our souls. And his righteousness, his death, gets put on our account and counts for us. So that all that stands between us and the living God keeps us from fellowship with him and communion with him and love for him. All of it is done away with in the work of the servant. Behold, Isaiah says, my servant, he will prosper He will accomplish all that is given to him. He will be high and lifted up, but only through suffering. But this suffering will get to the depth of our sin and will accomplish full forgiveness for God's people. Let me give you two points of application and then an illustration as we close. As we sang earlier in the song, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, uh, we sang this line about you who think of sin but lightly. How do you view your sin? Some of you may view it too lightly. Some of you may think that your sin is not nearly as bad as it is. Perhaps you compare yourself to others, and by that kind of evaluation, well, maybe you're above the the bar, so to speak. But as the hymn calls us to consider, it says, "See, See who bears the awful load. This is the divine servant the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Only He could accomplish forgiveness for us. Only He could deal with our sin because it is that bad, because the perversity of our hearts is so crooked, God Himself had to come and redeem us from it. We have dignity in the Lord Jesus. We have identity in Him, rather. And it is only by His dignity that He could take away the depth of our sin. What about you, on the other hand, who think of sin perhaps too heavily? Not that your evaluation is that your sin is not bad enough, but perhaps you think, God's grace can't reach my sin. Perhaps you think, my sin is so deep-seated in me and so pervasive in my life that the grace of God can't cover over my sin. Again, the answer is the same. See who bears the awful load. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who willingly and voluntarily took upon you all, uh, took upon himself rather all the sin that you have and dealt with it fully so that if you trust in Jesus, there is no transgression he will not forgive. There is no internal perversion he will not cleanse and correct by his spirit. There is no brokenness that he will not bind up and restore and make you whole. There is no shame he will not cover. There is no tear he will not wipe away. For it was the good pleasure of the Lord to cause the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Here's the program. It's Jesus. One who came to do what you could not do, but who did it in your place. Fully satisfying all that God requires of us. What you could not do, He did for you. And He calls you simply to trust in Him and to walk in His ways. There's a story I'd like to close with, a guy named Walter 
Wangerin uh, wrote called the, the Ragman. It's kind of an interesting story. I'm not sure that I can commend all that he has written, but this story, I think, captures well what the suffering servant has done. He writes of a young man walking down uh, kind of an inner city street, and, and this young man beholds uh, a tall, strong, intelligent man walking through these inner city alleys and streets, uh, carrying behind him a cart full of bright, clean linens, clothes, and garments. And he starts to wonder to himself, what is this young, strong man with these clean clothes doing in the inner city walking these streets? And he begins to behold this strange sight. This rag man begins to call out, rags, new rags for old. I take your tired rags. The ragman approaches a woman sitting on her porch and she's sobbing into her handkerchief, sighing and shedding a thousand tears, shoulders shaking, her heart breaking. The ragman stops, quietly walks up to this woman and whispers to her, give me your rag and I'll give you another. He takes her handkerchief from her and gives her a clean one in its place. And he begins to weep, and she is comforted and looks up and sees a linen cloth so clean and new that it shined. The ragman continues on, weeping into his now uh, wet handkerchief, sobbing grievously even as she had done. He comes and he finds uh, a young girl whose head is wrapped in a bandage, blood coming down her head, her eyes are empty with pain and numbness. The tall ragman looks down on this child with pity and pulls out a lovely yellow bonnet from his cart. And he leans over to her and says quietly, Give me your rag and I'll give you mine. She can only look at him as he loosens the bandage from around her head and places it upon his own head. And as he does, a new bright red uh, line of blood begins to go down his brow and he places the bonnet upon her head. He moves on crying out, rags, rags, I take old rags, weeping and bleeding from his head. He approaches a man leaning against a telephone pole and asks him, are you going to work today? And the man scoffs and says, no. The rag man inquires, why not? The man stands up and, and reveals that his right arm is missing and the cuff of his jacket is sewn into the shoulder. He has no arm. He can't work effectively. The ragman says, give me your jacket and I'll, I'll give you a new one. The man takes his jacket off, gives it to the ragman. The ragman takes off his jacket and along with it his arm, places it on the young man leaning against the pole who now has two strong arms and he tells him, go to work. The ragman walks off now with one less arm bleeding from his head, weeping into this handkerchief. Now with a sense of urgency, he begins to make his way out of the city as the sun begins to set. And the young man who's watching all of this unfold, who's been following the ragman through the streets, races after him, hardly able to keep up with him as the ragman goes out of the city, up on a hill, a pile of garbage, lays down, covers himself with this jacket, uh, lays his head down on this pile and dies. 
covered with the sorrow, covered with the shame and the sorrow of those whom he had met along the way. And the man observing this says he begins to weep because he couldn't understand why this strong, intelligent ragman would do this to himself, would take all of this upon him. And he doesn't realize that he slept through Friday night and Saturday, and when he wakes up on Sunday, the ragman has woken up. He's come back to life. He's risen from the dead. And all of the soiled, dirty rags that he had taken from those along the way had been washed clean by the ragman. It's a beautiful portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ taking our sorrow, our shame, our guilt upon himself, dying, but then rising again to make us new. May we put our hope in him and believe That all that is wrong with us, he has taken upon himself and he is at work renewing and restoring us by his spirit. And may we have confidence in what the Lord Jesus has done in our place. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, thank you. We're astonished at what you have done for us in Christ. Help us to believe it. And in believing, help us to walk in your ways to give glory and honor unto you. We thank you for the full and sufficient work of the Lord Jesus for us. We pray that your spirit would apply these things to our hearts, make us fit for your kingdom, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.